Welcome to Changing Academic Life. I'm Geraldine Fitzpatrick, and this is a bite-sized related work podcast where we pick up on a single idea from literature and experience that may provide some insights or tips that will help us change academic life for the better. I'd like to follow up here on my conversation with Michael Bungay Sanyuk where he talked about the the power of staying curious a little bit longer and being slower to jump into advice so that we make sure that when we are giving advice, we're giving advice to the right problem. And I think that as academics um, or people working in industry, working with people in our supervisory or our management roles, this can be one of the most powerful tools that we have at our disposal for developing the potential in others. And that's what we're all about in the people side of academia, I think, in our teaching and in our supervision. And I don't know about you, but I was never trained to take on these sorts of more human aspects of a role. We're taught how to do research, how to write papers. And if we're lucky, we may have had a good role model or a good mentor, or some people may have more natural skills in this regard. But I know for me that when I moved into my uh, first academic position, where I was managing people and projects and PhD students, I just felt totally overwhelmed. I felt like I needed to have all the answers, even though I was totally out of my depth. And to cover up for that, I know, and, and to sort of put forward the persona that I did know what I was doing, I know that I played out many of Michael's advice monsters, the tell it, the save it, the control it. I don't know how I came across this, but in 2007, I happened to see an advertisement for a training course for personal um, coaches, for development coaches. And I really liked the, the language that they used and the emphasis on development. And it just felt like that could be something useful to do. So I went and did this. It was over a number of months at weekends and online sessions, in between sessions. And the impact bringing that coaching-like mindset back to my job was absolutely transformative. I no longer felt like I had to have all the answers and there was literally a weight taken off my shoulders and it allowed me to be much more authentic and genuine in saying when I didn't have the answers. But I could um, ask, I, I was better at asking questions and helping people find their own solutions and collaboratively exploring the solution space. And it was so much more powerful, I think, for me and for them. And I like the way this sort of bringing a coaching mindset to our supervision and management really empowers the people that we're working with in a way that helps them think through their own issues and mobilize their own abilities and resources and expertise, complemented by ours when it's useful and the way that it can result in so much more increased autonomy and, and, and development for them. And there's a lot of, since this connects to a lot of the self-determination theory work about the importance of autonomy and competence and relatedness, so it really addresses some of those as basic human needs. And there's also a lot of neurobiological research that talks about the power of having your own insights, your own aha moments in coming to solutions rather than being told what to do. 
So I wanted to follow up here on um, what Michael talked about at the last conversation where he said in his book, The Coaching Habit, Say Less, Ask More and Change the Way You Lead Forever, he talks about seven key questions. And even though I trained as a coach and I subsequently uh, 10, 12 years or more later did a 10 years later, did a master's in applied positive psychology and coaching psychology. I knew the power of questions and I actually had collected pages of examples of different sorts of questions to ask. But there's something about the way he's captured the essence of really important core questions that I like in his book. Um, that's, it just makes it really accessible and approachable. So let's walk through the seven questions. The first one that he talks about is a Kickstarter question. It's saying, what's on your mind? What are we talking about today? And I really like this because it puts the agenda, uh, puts the emphasis on the person that you're talking with to own the agenda and to drive the conversation from their own need space. The second question is, and what else? And it could become the third and fourth and fifth question repeated. And what else? Because often he talks about the fact that what people say first isn't the real thing. And that asking and what else and what else, tell me more about that, helps you get down into what's really going on there rather than the superficial off the top of the head response. This is actually a question I teach students when I'm teaching them qualitative research methods and doing interviews that and what else is their most powerful question to ask in that context as well? Because we know doing qualitative research that often you don't get those deeper insights until you've helped people delve more and more into an issue. So the third question that he suggests is then at what he calls a focus question. So we've explored the and what else and what else and you can imagine lots of things on the table and then you're asking, what's the real challenge for you here? Now, note, and he made this is he talked about this as being a really important question as well. That you're not just asking what's the challenge because that's putting putting the focus on the challenge, but you're asking what's the challenge for you here. So it's about well, you as the person who's got to solve the problem. What's the challenge for you? And then it's the, what's the real challenge? So out of all the possible things we've talked about, and there are various sorts of challenges, you see, what's the challenge that's the most critical one that's going to make the biggest difference to address, that you're having the most trouble to, to um, uh, work out? And I invite you to play with different emphases in in how that question can be – have provoke different thinking. So you can say, what's the real challenge for you here? Or you could say, what's the real challenge for you here? Or you could say, what's the real challenge for you? Not for what you think everyone else would say, but for you. And what's the real challenge for you here? like in this situation. So that's a really powerful question to play with in lots of ways. 
And then once they've talked about that, then thinking about the, his next question, question number four, is, is a foundation question. Pulling people back to the heart of the matter, to what really matters in it, by saying to them, and what do you want? So it's a forward-looking question about you know, looking at what outcome we might be driving to. He then has a, what he calls a lazy question, which is, how can I help? And I would add, you could also say, who else can help you here? What other support could be useful for you here? And question six then becomes the strategic one because in all of this discussion, you could have explored different options or ideas or something that could be done. But if you're going, the strategic question number six is if you're going to say yes to this, what else are you saying no to? You know, you might remember from his last time he talked about there are always prize, there's a prize and a price. So what do you need to say no to in order to say yes to this? And then he closes the conversation with a learning question, which is what was most useful for you? So they're the seven questions that Michael poses in his book. Now, you don't clearly, it's not a formula. You don't have to go through each of them in exactly that order. They're sort of like tools in your toolbox. And they'll play different roles in different conversations. And sometimes it's just enough to say, what's the real challenge for you here? Or how can I help? Um, or just saying, and what else? Getting people to think more deeply. Notice that there's no why and there are no shoulds. And we can still offer some thoughts. So when we're exploring and what else, and, and that may be about, you know, and what are the options that you've been thinking of in solving this? we can still offer some thoughts and insights. And we could say something like, can I offer some of my own thoughts to add to your thinking or to put on the table? And that thing of asking permission to make a suggestion and being clear when you're sort of shifting into a little bit of advice mode, and you could even flag it more clearly. Would you be interested in knowing my strong advice? But I put it on the table and see what you think about it is helping you also, I find it helps me and it might help you be a little bit more reflective about what mode I'm being in at this time and still trying to leave the ultimate control for the decision with the person. So the other thing about these questions is you, of course, find your own language. You don't have to have uh, exactly the language that, that's in the questions. As I said, they're just, they're just tools in, in, a, in a toolkit. And you can see how uh, the thing about jumping into advice too quickly and not being curious in exploring, helping people explore the issue through asking good questions can lead to wrong advice and bad advice. If we just take an example, imagine a, a student coming to you and talking about having that they're having real trouble getting into writing this paper that they want to write. Again, I don't know about you, but I will often project onto them what would be my own situation if I was having trouble, you know, if I was procrastinating for writing. And I could assume it's a time management skill because that's my issue. It's a time management skill. Or I could assume it's just a writing skill. I don't know how to structure a paper. Um, 
And so I could jump in with immediate advice. I will, you know, what, have you got a timetable set up and have you structured your points and allocated time things to it? And they often just look, note when you're talking to people how they're looking, you know, because uh, they could be looking at you going, yeah, well, um, sure, I can do that. But you, you haven't really hit the nail on the head. So if you just ask them, what's going on with this? What's the real challenge for you around trying to get into the writing? You may eventually find out that it's actually a confidence issue, that they just feel like a bit of imposter trying to write it up. And it then it gives you the right problem that you're trying to to address, and then you can actually explore that issue with them. I also see... Uh, jumping into advice too quickly happen a lot in doctoral colloquiums and uh, early career researcher forums where the academic faculty panel are there literally with the expert label on and I you know, feeling like you have to play that out and justify being there as the expert. And I've been in, in DCs and uh, early career symposia where someone has presented or talked about an issue and the faculty have immediately jumped in and say, saying, well, why don't you do this or you should do this or you know, do this. And I can see the person, is, it, it's not connecting with the person. It's, it's not really addressing what they're, what they're talking about. And just intervening and saying, can I just ask a clarifying question? Can you tell me what's really going on here? What's the real issue behind this or what's the real challenge here? can totally shift the conversation and it helps people feel a little bit heard and also helps them just reflect on their own situation. And as Michael said last time, we can then get into advice mode if that makes sense, but we're giving advice to the right problem. I do want to make it clear though that uh, I am far from being perfect at this or applying it all the time as I'm sure if you ask the people that I work with. And I, I'm trying to be more aware of the situations where I'm more likely to slip into uh, advice too quickly. And often I know that that's when I'm feeling a little bit busy or under stress myself and it just seems like an immediately convenient way of, of getting the problem solved. But it's actually not that such a good idea in the long run. And it doesn't actually take that much longer just to even ask a simple question about what what's the problem that we're really dealing with here. But it's an ongoing learning journey and lots of opportunities for, for practice in our roles as academics. And I also want to recognise that there are some times when we do need to take more of a command and a control stance rather than a, a staying curious and slower to advice role. And that's part of learning when is it appropriate to wear what hats. So it's just such a powerful tool. It's a totally transformative tool, shifting from needing to know everything to needing to ask good questions, to staying curious. And I hope that just sharing some of these questions, as Michael elaborated them in the book, might offer you some tools for different ways of thinking about engaging in the conversations that you have with the people that you're trying to grow and develop and, and collaborate with. You can find the summary notes and related links for this podcast on www 
www.changingacademiclife.com. You can also subscribe to Changing Academic Life on iTunes and now also on Stitcher. And you can follow Change Acad Life on Twitter. And if something connected with you, please consider sharing this podcast with your colleagues so that we can widen the conversation about how we can do academia differently.